welcome to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lupmon, and as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about the growing possibility of a nuclear war with China, workers in Honduras on strike at the U.S. Embassy being built there, and it's Tuesday. So it's time for our weekly segment, Tech for the People. And later on in our show, starting at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Time, we'll be opening the phone lines to you. But before we can move on... In 2015, taxi drivers staged a massive revolt in Marseille, France, blocking the entrance to the city's airport and train stations, burning tires in the streets and overturning cars. They were protesting the rise of a new ride-sharing services in the country called Uber, saying that the company broke laws and was running them out of business. The taxi drivers were not wrong, as the Uber files reveals. The Uber Files is a cache of leaked documents, including emails, text messages, company presentations, and other materials from 2013 to 2017 that show that the San Francisco-based Uber was barging into cities around the world in defiance of local laws and regulations, dodging taxes, and seeking to grind into submission and destroy the taxi industry, most notably but also labor activists. The documents were obtained by the Guardian newspaper and shared with the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists and 42 other media partners. In Marseille, after the French government partially suspended Uber in response to the protests, Uber's European lobbyist, Mark McCann, reached out to an up-and-coming French politician for help. A text from McCann to then-Minister Macron in October 2015 shows him asking Macron if his cabinet could help Uber understand what's going on. Macron responded saying he will personally look into the matter and asked McCann to send him all the facts. Then the cabinet will decide later. What happened? The suspension of Uber in France was revised later that day. Mark McCann was Uber's chief lobbyist in Europe at the time and is actually the person who leaked these documents. They describe Uber's approach to entering new markets as a poop storm, according to the documents, and poop was not the word that was used. He said in an interview with The Guardian, That, quote, I was the one talking to governments. I was the one pushing this with the media. I was the one telling people that they should change the rules because drivers were going to benefit and people were going to get so much economic opportunity, end quote. But when it became clear that not only were drivers not reaping the economic benefits McCann and the company sold to politicians and the public, but that the company's meteoric rise and cornering the rideshare market actually hurt Uber drivers and taxi drivers, McCann began to wonder. When that turned out not to be the case, we had actually sold people a lie How can you have a clear conscience if you don't stand up and own your contribution to how people are being treated today, McCann said. So he leaked the documents, much of which he is a direct source in, 
which proved that the company bosses knew that their tactics were illegal and that they were lying to drivers about those benefits. One of those emails is from the former head of global communications, Nairi Hurdajian, who said in a 2014 message, quote, sometimes we have problems because, well, we're just effing illegal, end quote. McCann said that violating laws, then making nice with politicians to get them changed in the company's favor was a strategy, a tactic to introduce the company to new markets and to expand quickly. The Uber files show how David Plouffe and Jim Messina used connections and goodwill from their time in the Obama administration to help Uber expand across Europe and the Middle East. And the files reveal the kill switch the company developed that would remotely encrypt its computers and devices if an office was raided by the authorities because, you know, they were effing illegal. So, of course, the specter of being raided by authorities was a very real concern. Concern, and they actually used this device on several occasions when Uber offices were in fact raided in Canada, France, the Netherlands, Belgium, Hungary, Romania, and Hong Kong. The company lobbied governments to influence regulatory agencies to identify and treat the company as a technology company instead of as a transportation company, which helped it avoid paying drivers minimum wage, helped them avoid providing them benefits, allowing them breaks, and covering the cost of wear and tear on their personal vehicles if they use them to drive for the company. This also helped Uber create a special independent contractor designation for drivers so they would not have to adhere to any labor laws since their drivers were not employees. And the U.S. was not exempt from these dirty deeds. Oh, no. In 2016, then-U.S. Vice President Joseph Biden requested a meeting with then-CEO Travis Kalanick at the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland. Kalanick made his pitch to Biden that Uber was transforming cities around the world and the way people work, and it was all for the better. And what did Joseph Biden do? Well, he was so impressed that he tweaked his keynote speech that he delivered later that day to trumpet the company's global impact and success. Despite alleged reforms of the company's operating procedures, Uber drivers around the world still complain about grueling hours and poor pay. Many entered high-cost leasing deals for their Uber cars. During the pandemic, some couldn't make ends meet as they struggled to make car payments. In India, drivers pay Uber 20 to 30 percent of their fares in commission, double the amount when Uber launched. In the United Kingdom and the Netherlands, courts have ruled that Uber drivers are covered by labor laws. But in the United States, the National Labor Relations Board declared that Uber drivers are independent contractors who do not have the right to form unions or bargain collectively. All the while, the rise of the rideshare company have destroyed the livelihoods of traditional transportation workers and expanded the oppression of the gig economy to a whole new population of people who can't even legally be designated as workers in many cases. This is why we say workers of the world 
in all workforces must unite. Follow Lukeman Nation on Patreon.com slash Nation for lots of great content. And those are today's talking points. And you are listening to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. By Any Means Necessary. And let's keep the movement moving on. I'm happy to be joined by Jeremy Kuzmarov, managing editor of Covert Action magazine and author of four books on U.S. foreign policy, including The Russians Are Coming, again with John Marciano and Obama's Unending Wars. Jeremy, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. I'm really glad you could come on today to talk about Biden's policy pivoting toward uh, Asia now with their provocation uh, toward China. And there is, uh, of course, always uh, a concern that U.S. foreign policy would uh, bring us closer to a nuclear confrontation. But I, I don't know that we have been closer than we are to that possibility than we are right now today, particularly with the policy decisions that the Biden administration have made in Ukraine and the so-called diplomatic statements that they have made and alliances and and, and alliances that have been made uh, uh, with the intention of antagonizing China. So in your latest piece, you talk about some specific events that have recently occurred that bring us even closer to a possible nuclear war with China. And I'm wondering if you can give us some insight into what those events were. Uh, Sure. Well, at the end of June, uh, a U.S. naval vessel and spy plane encroached into the Taiwan Straits and in the South China Sea. And that, you know, from a Chinese point of view, that's a, a provocation. Uh, also, under you know, U.S. Uh, under international law, is actually illegal uh, because under the law, uh, you know, China claims sovereignty over the Taiwan Straits and um, you know, much of the South China Sea, and they have some legitimacy under international law uh, since you know the location of Taiwan is not far off the Chinese uh, coastline, and it fits within the, the, the parameters uh, of the law that. You know, legitimate Chinese claims. So, uh, what the U.S. is doing, yeah, is very, very reckless and just, you know, provoking China. You know, if, if China sent naval vessels and spy planes into the Gulf of Mexico, uh, or water just off the United States, people would be greatly alarmed here, obviously. And probably there would be a hysterical reaction. Uh, so it's just, yeah, needlessly provocative policy that the U.S. is carrying out. Yeah. As a matter of fact, the, uh, Indo-Pacific Command, the U.S. Indo-Pacific Commands, one of 11 commands uh, uh, within the Department of Defense that monitors the entire globe 24-7. And the Indo-Pacific Command monitors the Pacific, uh, the, the countries in the Pacific. They said that the spy planes transit demonstrates that the United States is, quote, commitment to a free and open Indo-Pacific. 
And U.S. State Department spokesman Ned Price told Bloomberg News that the Taiwan Strait is an international waterway where freedom of navigation and overflight are guaranteed under international law. The U.S. will continue to fly, sail, and operate wherever international law allows, and that includes transit through the Taiwan Strait. Now, that's an interesting statement to me because if it's a free and open waterway and, uh, you know, anyone can navigate there uh, without um, you know, without interference, then then why can't China do the same that the U.S. is doing, Jeremy? Well, exactly, yeah. And China, you know, China has claimed uh, sovereignty over that uh, water and also over Taiwan itself you know, under the One China policy, which uh, the U.S. had recognized, although the Biden administration has diverted from that. Uh, but you know, China has claimed Taiwan as being part of China, and has you know historical basis for that claim. Uh, so, I mean, the U.S. is just antagonizing China, and I think they know that. Uh, and the question is why they're doing that. You know, especially when the U.S. economy is quite dependent on China, and even the U.S. military depends on Chinese technology because China is you know very advanced in some of the technologies uh, they produce. Uh, so. I mean, I think Americans should be questioning why the U.S. government is picking a fight with China uh, and carrying out these uh, provocative missions, yeah, which could escalate into a war that the U.S. couldn't necessarily win and possibly a nuclear war. Yeah, and this is not the the first time. It's just the most recent that there have been U.S. incursions into Chinese sovereign territory because in January 2022, a destroyer, entered Chinese territorial waters off the uh, Zisha Islands in the South China Sea without authorization from the Chinese government. And what was the excuse that the U.S. used for doing that back in January? I can't remember, but you know, some of it has to do with the island. You know, they claim that China has taken over these islands in the South uh, South China Sea, and that's very you know contested. Some of those islands, actually, Japan had seized from China illegally back in the uh, Sino-Japanese War, you know, at the end of the 19th century. And a lot of the experts believe China actually has a legitimate claim over a lot of those uh, islands. So. You know, some of the islands are strategic, and they, they can use them for military facilities. Uh, and so it's somewhat of a complicated issue. But the the uh, you know U.S. just claims China is in the wrong uh, when it's not so black and white, and that's often a pretext for some of these maneuvers. But really, if you look at it, it was you know starting under the Obama administration with this pivot to Asia strategy, the U.S. you know started pivoting its military forces into the South China Sea and Southeast Asia to try and contain China. You know, China, was emer- you know, its economy has emerged as a threat to the United States' uh, economic, you know, past economic dominance and, and geopolitical dominance. I mean, China's evolving into to a powerhouse, with the, you know, particularly economically. And with the One Belt, One Road initiative, you know, they've won a lot of uh, sympathy and support and new allies because they poured a lot of money into infrastructure projects that have uh, aided the economies uh, of their neighbors. So the U.S. is becoming jealous of seeing China as a threat. So they're inventing pretexts to try and circle China militarily and build up anti-Chinese alliances. And that really started uh, in full force with the Obama administration's pivot Asia strategy, and it's been continued by the Trump and Biden administrations. 
And yeah, it, it's provoking China more and more, uh, which was never really a militaristic power. I mean, China has emerged as a, a strong economy, uh, but they're not like the United States with military bases around the world or, you know, supporting like uh, uh, coups or, or violent military interventions. So they're not really a threat. Uh, it's just a threat to American economic uh, uh, interests and, and, and geopolitical dominance uh, over the globe. Yeah, a couple of things came to mind as you were uh, just responding. Number one, that uh, that Japan uh, was mentioned uh, and that they uh, illegally seized some of the islands that are contested in the South China Sea. I think it's, it's worth noting that Japan was a member uh, of the Axis powers in World War II, was an imperialist uh, nation and once occupied parts of China. Um, and now uh, the U.S. is all buddy-buddy and chummy with uh, former Imperial Japan. Uh, and then there's the issue of the money that is spent. You talked about uh, China's investment, massive investment, trillions of dollars in the Belt and Road Initiative. But uh, on the other side of the monetary equation, what is the United States spending its money on in this engagement with China? Well, the U.S. is spending tremendously on arms and you know, this huge military buildup uh, in the South China Sea, and they spent money to refresh, you know, starting with the Obama Pivot to Asia strategy. Uh, they invested in you know, upgrading military bases uh, among U.S. allies in Southeast Asia, like in South Korea, uh, and that was a very, you know, contentious within Korea. There were a lot of protests when they were expanding the military base on Jeju-do Island as part of this, you know, containment of China. And, you know, Jeju-do Island was location of major massacre by U.S.-backed forces during the Korean War. And it's a World Heritage Site, and, you know, these bases have terrible environmental consequences. So the locals, there are, you know, huge protests against the, the expansion of the military bases that the U.S. has been carrying out as part of this uh, strategy I was describing. So, uh, I mean, I think it's a, it's an outrage. It's a moral outrage uh, of how we spend our taxpayer dollars and how we anger and, and, and carry out injustices against people uh, as part of this yeah, strategy. I mean, I think there's tremendous grounds to further the U.S. Co- cooperation with China. I mean, the, the Nixon administration... I mean, I'm not a great fan of Nixon, but I think one sound strategy he had was to go to China and to restore you know, diplomatic relations between the U.S. and China. And with China's growing economy, I mean, it presents opportunities uh, for the U.S. economically to be able to uh, you know, work together with the Chinese and mutually benefit uh, from China's growing economy. And you know, Xi Jinping proposed a win-win strategy and model that each country will you know, pursue its own interests and that they can work together to advance their own interests. And that's what the U.S. government should be doing, and the population pushing our government to uh, abide by this win-win approach of Xi Jinping instead of seeing him as an enemy. And as I was saying, China is not a military, you know, they're not a violent country. I mean, they have some internal problems and oppression, but they're not violent towards other countries where they invade other countries or overthrow their governments. Yeah, it is not China that has 800-plus military bases around the world and monitors the entire globe with 11 uh, defense uh, 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 commands um, all over of 24-7. But, you know, Jeremy, I have to wonder 
what this provo- uh, provocation toward China, these particular incidents, how did they fit in the U.S. involvement in Ukraine and the ultimate long-term goal of U.S. foreign policy to not just weaken Russia, which uh, uh, Lloyd Austin openly admitted, but but what does this say about U.S. goals for China uh, in the long run? Well, I think I would say two things. Yeah, one is I, I think we do see the pernicious influence of the military-industrial complex that's resulting in a rational foreign policy strategy. You know, the, the law being a military industry who profits from the military buildups and, you know, the naval buildup in the South China Sea is good for the shipbuilders uh, and, you know, English shipbuilding and the Raytheon and uh, Lockheed Martin, you know, that make spy planes. As we know, they have an overwhelming influence on U.S. politics through lobbying and through campaign donations, and it leads ultimately to a, a, rec- a rational foreign policy uh, when there's ample opportunity for diplomatic engagement in this case, uh, and the Chinese president even again advocated this win-win strategy. So I, I think Americans have to challenge the military-industrial complex. And uh, I think uh, the other factor is that the U.S. Is, uh, you know, can't seem to accept that the world is moving toward multipolarity. They're kind of U.S. elites are kind of clinging to this idea that the U.S. has to be the sole world hegemon, and that China and Russia are just you know terrible, you know, authoritarian and, and terrible countries. Uh, when I mean it's a mixed bag. I mean you know, again with the one belt one road, China's doing a lot of good uh, by you know boosting the economy of many countries uh, through its infrastructural development. So in many ways, the multipolar world order would be would be good, uh, you know, would be better for humanity than what we see with the American century and all the, you know, the uh, reckless military adventurism of the United States and, and, and harm that has caused. But U.S. elites can't accept, you know, rival powers uh, coming up, and, you know, and they can't accept this idea of multipolar world order. So they're, they're lashing out. They're desperately trying to confront these countries and provoking conflicts that, again, could lead to major you know, wars or even a nuclear war. So I think the American public has to see the danger of the U.S. foreign policy right now and mobilize. We need a resurgence of the peace movement, and they've got to be out there, uh, out there in the streets and all kinds of political activism to transform U.S. foreign policy in a more peaceful direction and to accept the reality of multipolar world order and to uh, work uh, towards making that order work as best as possible. And the U.S. will still be a powerful country, so... Absolutely. want to thank you, uh, Jeremy Kazmarov, so much for joining me today. We'll be back on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C., so please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukman. And as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. 
And today we're talking about a worker strike at the U.S. Embassy being built in Honduras and some other labor news around the world. And I'm happy to be joined by Dr. Adrian Pine, retired associate professor of anthropology at American University and co-editor of the book Asylum for Sale, Profit and Protest in the Migration Industry. Dr. Pine, thanks so much for joining me. Great to be with you, Jackie. Really excited to hear this news uh, coming out of Honduras about uh, contractors who are building the U.S. Embassy in Honduras, not uh, at all happy about a U.S. Embassy being built in Honduras. However, the contractors have been alleging labor abuses and they have gone on strike. So uh, give us some detail about the issues that these contractors have been facing and how they came to decide to uh, go on strike. Sure. Well, last Wednesday and Thursday, um, workers uh, just sort of on their own went on strike because they're not unionized. So these are the workers that are working for the contractor that's called BL Harbor. It's based in Alabama and also is making billions of dollars on the, the private prison industrial complex construction here in the United States. So we can get to that later. But the workers um, at the U.S. Embassy construction site were protesting a whole slew of labor abuses. Now, when I, you know, this this came to light, it was very spontaneous um, for, uh, you know, for people who were outside of their particular struggle, which was most Hondurans too. Um, and so I spoke with some of the workers there. And what they told me is that basically they're being denied any sort of long-term contracts, even though some of them have been working there for up to three years. They're only being given three-month contracts at a time, which means that they're not eligible for any sort of benefits. They are penalized if they are injured on the job and have to, you know, have to go to, to get health care. They're, um, they're fined for that. There are, um, they have colleagues who have lost fingers, who have had other major injuries and haven't been paid any severance pay. Um, or disability compensation, they're being served rotten food at lunch, and, you know, they're being just basically treated like dirt is what they told me, and they're, you know, they're feeling humiliated on the job. This is a contractor that the United States has used um, for uh, decades in almost all of its embassy construction around the world. And it really, um, I, I found this out uh, later in, in looking at it in the past few days, that um, it really rose to preeminence in the embassy construction field thanks to the dissolution of the Soviet Union. So the, it, it, it found tremendous profit in the U.S. building new embassies in former Soviet countries, um, starting with Ukraine. <laughs> and um, and then it has profited tremendously also off of the sort of fortification of U.S. embassies around the world, thanks to the, um, you know, to the to the hyped up terror threat. Um, so it's a company that that has had labor um, labor conflicts in many different countries with its workers, claiming much the same sorts of things um, in Ghana, in Namibia, in Turkey. There have been articles about workers protesting this company. Um, even the U.S. government has even sued it for, um, <laughs> for, for issues related to corruption and won. Um, and yet the State Department keeps contracting this company, BL Harbor International, 
to build its embassies. And to me, it's just such a striking example of, you know, just in a nutshell of what the United States, what those embassies are for and what it thinks of workers around the world. It's for a neoliberal militarized exploitation of, of brown and black people around the world. Yeah, I find it striking that uh, the U.S. government has sued a contractor to the U.S. government that is building uh, embassies in countries that U.S. imperialism has already pretty much eviscerated and destabilized society like Ghana, like Nambia, like mm, Ukraine, uh, like Honduras. The U.S. is still trying to uh, maintain uh, a foothold in Honduras and uh, continue to destabilize that country and oppose and oppress left forces there. And and what does this say about the, the full, uh, another aspect of, of the full spectrum dominance of U.S. imperialism, Dr. Pine, where uh, the U.S. government through the State Department will use a contractor that it knows is corrupt, that it knows uh, uh, abuses employees, forces uh, workers to sign illegal contracts uh, that don't protect them from anything, work injuries or anything, in order to build an embassy through which U.S. policy is carried out that further represses the very same people once that embassy is built. I just, just the totality of U.S. dominance to me is just, it's mind boggling, Dr. Pine. It, it really is astounding, Jackie. I have, a, you know, I, I have few words to add to it. I mean, in Honduras, there are already around, you know, it, it, um, the number ebbs and flows, but probably around 14 U.S. military bases, including the small ones like forward operating bases um, in that country. It has served as the base for U.S. military operations in the region for nearly half a century. And, um, and the embassy itself is already the current embassy, not the one that they're building. The current embassy itself is already known in Honduras as the place where the governing of Honduras really happens. And of course, we have the first government that's really trying ever so slightly to challenge that with Xiomara Castro um, in a very difficult position because the United States has such a stranglehold on the country uh, coming out of 12 years of neoliberal fascist narco dictatorship thanks to the U.S. support of a coup in 2009 and sub- subsequent electoral fraud. And so, you know, it's already a fortress and it's already a place that is known to Hondurans to be sinister. It was, it was, uh, remodeled after, um, after major protests in uh, 1988, and Hondurans came together to protest the extradition um, of a of a popular um, of a popular uh, drug trafficker in Honduras, um, because there was the principle at the time that that Hondurans should be able to try their own criminals, but the United States denied that. And- there were protests um, because, ironically, he was well loved because he was providing more services to poor Hondurans than you know than their, than their government at the time, supported by the United States. 
so they, they rebuilt the embassy. All the U.S. embassy staff at that time moved across the street to the USAID offices since they're really the same place. But it's just different branches. And, um, and they built it up to look like what, you know, sort of what the Israeli embassy in, the, in Washington, D.C. looks like, you know, massive anti-tank cement features in front, ugly as heck. But, um, but that's how, that's how it's been. And it's, um, yeah. And what, what can I say exactly what you're saying? That it's, it's just astounding that the United States not, you know, all of the other things that already supports the sort of neoliberal hell, the transformation into a neoliberal fascist hell of countries that, uh, you know, it, uh, throughout the Americas and around the world. But it still talks that talk of human rights. And I, I don't know. I was, I was actually surprised that they, that they keep hiring this same company that has just been so egregious and so open in its political leanings. You know, the company's donations have been to the most right wing Republicans that are out there. Uh, Marco Rubio, you know, it's a hundred percent Republican donation. Not that it would be any better for it to be Democrats, but you know, they're, they're very blatant about their politics, and yet the State Department keeps hiring them to build these fortresses to really emphasize its dominance over the world. I think it's just let go of any pretense of multipolarity or, yeah. And, you know, what has uh, the response been from this contractor? Are they negotiating with the workers? Are the working workers getting some of their demands met? Well, what is happening in regard to the workers' demands? Well, because there were a few articles published in Honduras and because we've been trying our best to circulate what's going on here in the United States, I think the State Department and the embassy has felt a little bit of pressure. And so on the second day that workers had, you know, stopped, stopped construction completely. Um, so last Thursday, they did have an all-day meeting, members of the Honduran Labor Ministry and, uh, and representatives from hers met with BL Harbor. Um, but BL Harbor refused to budge some of their most basic demands, claiming that Honduran labor law allowed them to do these things. Of course, the aspects of the Honduran labor law that they're referring to are things that were changed during the narco dictatorship of Juan Orlando Hernandez during the period 2018 to um, to to this past January, when he was ruling after the most blatant fraudulent election. You know that he has he and his, his security forces had to kill over 40 people. But thanks to the United States Embassy's rubber stamp, he was allowed to stay in place. So they're talking about, um, you know, the, these really bad labor laws that are in place, that were put in place in terms of, because of a dictatorship that enable them to not give workers any job security or, um, uh, you know, or, or, or basic, you know, respect their basic human rights and saying, well, you know, we're, we're cool because because we're following the law and the legal standards. And Hondurans are saying, like, first of all, they're not entirely following the law, but secondly, that is what was put in place thanks to the U.S. Embassy um, propping up a fascist dictatorship. And if that's, you know, that that's what this, this company and the United States 
the, the State Department is representing by continuing to, um, to exploit these workers in such a grotesque fashion. Yeah, and Dr. Pine, there are uh, more labor uh, movement uh, issues in the UK, uh, apparently where uh, some rail strikes had been going on, and apparently they are uh, about to expand, as well as some issues with uh, airlines filing for bankruptcy. What's going on with uh, transportation uh, around the world and in regard to labor issues? And, you know, I'm not I'm not as up to date on those specific struggles as I am on the Honduran one. But what I can say is that, you know, we've seen so many really interesting trends in the past few years in terms of labor. I mean, I think people with the great resignation have been saying, no, we're not going to put up with this kind of horrific abuse on the job. And, you know, you hear about employers complaining that nobody wants to work anymore. Workers are in a strong position right now because I think we're, people are really fed up. And, it, you know, in, in Europe, the labor union movement has always been stronger than it is here in the United States and in the transportation sector in particular, they've got a lot of power because, you know, they can stop the trains. Um, so I'm, I'm excited to see what comes. Yeah, definitely. The uh, uh, UK train drivers in particular, under the Associated Society of Locomotive Engineers and Firemen, or ASLEF, uh, the transportation union there, um, will, uh, or at least may strike, actually for the first time in 27 years, as workers from the 10 companies that it represents uh, voted to do that and uh, why they were uh, angry at pay. Um, they were upset that in the early that, that starting salaries is in the early uh, 20,000 pounds and that one member said they were better off working at Lidl, which is uh, a European-based grocery store chain, a European supermarket chain. Um, And the two unions' actions, that comes after 40,000 members of the National Union of Rail, Maritime, and Transportation Workers walked off their jobs in June, causing the entire country's rail network to shut down, come to a standstill. And the pilots of Scandinavian airlines went on strike for the same reason, for pay. I mean, Dr. Pine, do you see, along with the international uh, people's movement against uh, U.S. and Western imperialism that is birthing a political multipolarity. Do you also see uh, globally some connection between international worker struggles and the what seems to be an emergence of uh, uh, workers organizing and mobilization in other countries That's something we need to pay attention to and learn from and connect with here in the United States to advance U.S. workers' issues. Oh, absolutely, Jackie. And that's a topic that would take hours for us to talk about adequately. I think I think our labor movement, um, you know, historically has been so weak precisely because it has taken a pro, it has been in large part forced, uh, you know, through state violence uh, to take a pro-imperialist, anti-communist stance. And that has really weakened the, the union movement. And then, of course, with Reagan, the airlines, the neoliberal, you know, the implementation 
implementation of neoliberal policies since the 1980s. I mean, we just have a, a, a really low numbers. Now, that's changing with Amazon and with Starbucks, with people, you know, really kind of changing the model of union organizing in the United States. But we really need to be looking to other countries that have had much stronger, and I think analytically more honest union movements, because they recognize that the enemy they're fighting against is not just their bosses, but capitalism uh, and and U.S. imperialism itself. Um, and I think um, it's really only through out, uh, international solidarity that we're going to be able to to um, you know to to achieve the goals of any sort of human rights, workers' rights that um, that that we hope to have, um, and and letting the countries that have been doing a far better job of it for a long time than us in the United States um, take the lead. Absolutely. We cannot say enough on this show. Workers of the world unite. We absolutely mean that. But we're out of time for this segment. want to thank Dr. Adrian Pine so much for joining me, but we will be back on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik here in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukeman, and as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movement shaping the world around us. By any means necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And it's Tuesday, which means we're having our weekly segment, Tech for the People, where we're joined by technologist Chris Garafa, co-host of the Covert Action Bulletin podcast. Chris, thanks so much for joining me. Oh, as always, great to be back with you, Jackie. Thank you. Great to have you on to talk about what seems like good news, but I'm always very guarded about good news in the tech arena when it comes to surveillance technology and uh, the Department of Defense or or the potential uses for uh, surveillance technology. Apparently, the American defense contractor L3 Harris, which was going to uh, acquire NSO Group's surveillance technology, actually have abandoned those plans now. So what has caused L3 Harris to give up their pursuit of acquiring uh, the NSO Group's surveillance technology? And what implications does this have on the future of that surveillance technology and the NSO Group? Yes, certainly. This is something we had initially talked about a few weeks ago. I brought to the show to say that, you know, this this defense contractor, U.S. defense contractor, L3 Harris, was looking to buy the NSO Group, which is the Israeli company that is most well known for its Pegasus spyware that lets attackers, usually uh, governments around the world, attack and infect phones, Android and Apple phones, and basically take them over generally without the person who's the victim ever even knowing that it's happened. Well, it turns out the White House had some concerns about the purchase of uh, the NSO group by an American defense contractor. One thing that happened is NSO had sort of been um, blacklisted. It was put on a blacklist uh, by 
various portions of the U.S. government and the Treasury Department because of the the technology that it's used and really because of the way that Pegasus has been exposed over the last few years. We keep learning more and more about uh, the high-level uh, you know, government officials and diplomats around the world from many, many countries who have been targeted um, by Pegasus, um, as well as journalists, human rights workers, and others. Well, the White House said that they had some concerns about uh, about this, uh, about L3 Harris buying the NSO group. Their concerns are mostly rooted in national security, though, not particularly in human rights. And I think it's important to understand their their comments and their uh, opposition in that context. They're not necessarily opposed to the idea of having this kind of spyware uh, or American companies, you know, having it or developing it. They're opposed to bringing in uh, Israeli spyware directly into the U.S. because other countries have also had access to this. There have been a number of uh, Middle Eastern and European countries in particular who have used Pegasus and other NSO products, and products like it, by the way, because NSO is not nearly the only company that makes these things. Um, you know, And it hasn't, as far as we know, been used against Americans in the U.S. And in fact, NSO says that you can't use it against people in the U.S. They have measures around that. But I think you know the Biden administration is still looking at this technology and saying, we probably don't want to bring an outside source in here and secretly saying, well, maybe we should develop this in-house or in-country. Yeah, uh, clearly it, this is not uh, a win really for anyone other than, you know, the United States defense industry that continues to be able to uh, decide who can uh, buy what uh, surveillance technology and work with whom to spy on and repress us all. So uh, kind of feels like an even even uh, uh, kind of this kind of feels like a wash and there, there's no win. But there is an interesting part of who might end up uh, um, acquiring NSO's capabilities. And that's this group called the Five Eyes, which I've actually never heard of before, Chris. And who are they and how do they fall into uh, the ongoing saga of, of the NSO group and their surveillance technology? Certainly, the Five Eyes countries, this is the U.S., the U.K., Canada, New Zealand, and Australia. This uh, alliance, this this spying alliance, basically, goes back to the post-World War II period and particularly the Cold War, where these countries agree to share surveillance information and intelligence with each other. This is kind of the closest tight-knit circle uh, that you're going to get when it comes to information sharing between intelligence agencies at such a high level. There's also nine eyes, um, I think a 12 eyes, and they have various, you know, different expanded groups of people or uh, expanded groups of countries within these, um, you know, with, within the, those, those groups. But basically, yeah, I mean, these, these five major imperial c- countries, right, the U.S., U.K., Canada, New Zealand, Australia, um, because of their locations geographically around the world, uh, because of the political influence they have, um, they're able to really do a lot of signals intelligence. So that's tapping into phone lines or Internet communications, things like that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the NSA, part of this, uh, you know, MI5, MI6, part of this, certainly all of these 
intelligence agencies coming together. Uh, and again, this is not a new thing. This is uh, an alliance that has existed for, for many, many decades. And they want this kind of technology. And in many cases, they have it. They just don't deploy it that often. We saw from the CIA's Vault 7 leaks about five years ago that, you know, there was a, you know, they could take over phones, they could take over TVs, they could even hack a Jeep in order to, you know, turn it into a surveillance machine. So this is all those kind of things that the, all the kind of things that the Five Eyes and the extended groupings are going to do. Yeah. And so and their surveillance is not going away. It's just going to change hands. And it seems to be five sets of hands uh, uh, to boot. And and I want to pivot real quickly to another story that has leaked, and it's actually pretty massive. There has been a tranche of uh, documents, including emails and text messages, uh, including internal documents uh, from Uber uh, in relation to their European operations. And this information was leaked to the uh, International Consortium on Investigative Journalism and The Guardian and a bunch of other media outlets. And what these documents reveal, while very shocking, it's also exactly what people have been saying about Uber and its uh, employment practices and its political practices, Chris. So, so tell us about uh, the Uber files and why they are so important. Oh, it is so good. It's a lot to read, but I really recommend people take some time to go understand what exactly Uber does. Right, Uber is not just a ride-sharing platform. It is not just a you know, this company that hooks you up with a driver to get you from place A to place B. Uber is a giant international corporation that has wielded its power uh, to impact local politics and, in fact, uses, just like many other companies do, lobbyists, dirty tricks and backhanded maneuvers in order to get what it wants. I think we often don't think about that when we think about Uber, the company. We think about just, you know, the app that we have and the driver who comes to pick us up and, and things like that. But, uh, you know, people can find this report at ICIJ.org. It's been covered elsewhere in The Guardian. Um, and I, I definitely do recommend reading it. One of the most interesting things to me uh, is this idea that they had a kill switch on their internal systems. And they use this in a number of times, but particularly in November of 2014, the French police uh, raided Uber's Paris office and one of their attorneys actually emailed uh, somebody and said, kill access now. And what Uber corporate IT support did was basically shut off all access from the Paris office to their corporate servers so that when the French authorities got to their computers and tried to get into them, they actually were completely unable to, meaning that they were unable to get any kind of information or uh, any files or anything about what Uber was doing because the company had already ahead of time set up a system and set up a platform where they could just turn off access should a police raid happen. And they've actually used this uh, in a number of other countries. Uh, 
Netherlands, Hungary, and India being just a few of them. So this is something they planned ahead of time for. They knew what to expect. So that's one of the really most significant things to me. The other thing, you know, I, I think in this, all, all of this stuff is kind of going back be- before 2017 when, um, when the Uber's leadership changed. There were a number of scandals around, uh, around Uber. But I don't want to get. Uh, you know, I don't want people to get the idea that it's a better company in the last five or six years. We still know that the Uber has a awful habit of mistreating its drivers. It fights very hard to not have to classify them as an, as employees, so that they don't need to get a minimum wage. They don't need to get paid breaks. They don't need to you know get paid anything. They don't get insurance. No, nothing like that that an employee would would get because it saves the money that way. And Uber to continually today continues to fund uh, anti-worker, anti-driver campaigns while still actually lowering the rates that their drivers get. And even in a even in a pandemic, really not taking care of their drivers outside of just giving them some you know some PPE uh, after drivers started demanding it. Yeah, you know, and the way they got around uh, providing a minimum wage and a benefits for their drivers was to convince politicians to recognize them as something else. What was that something else that uh, Uber convinced politicians uh, in several countries to recognize the company as? And how did that really impact how they shaped their the policies for their um I can't even call them employees because they didn't really treat them that way uh independent contra- contractors yeah they have this concept called IC plus independent contractor plus where they would say the workers are not employees so you don't get all of those benefits insurance healthcare you know any of that stuff right a minimum wage but you were a contractor um, Uber promised that they would get, you know, that they would give some protections. They say limited benefits, a minimum wage for engaged time, which as a former driver, engaged time is the time that you are either driving to pick somebody up or driving to drop them off. Um, those things didn't really work out. I mean, I haven't driven for Uber, but I know from my experience with other types of these companies, the benefits that they provide are really just corporate partnerships with other private companies uh, that you still need to pay for maybe, you know, tax help or car maintenance or things like that. Whereas if you were driving a company car, then that stuff would be taken care of by the company, not you individually. And so they they lobby not just, you know, I think the biggest example was California's Prop 22, but they've also lobbied in Massachusetts and in Canada and the Netherlands and a number of other places to maintain this independent contractor plus status where they claim to be providing some sorts of guarantees and benefits for the drivers, the people that really make this company work. Because if there weren't drivers, there would be no Uber. And Instead, they actually continue to lower rates uh, in most markets while charging exorbitantly high prices for rides, uh, particularly during peak periods uh, or, you know, especially during the pandemic when many drivers couldn't or wouldn't go out and drive. Absolutely. And the way Uber did this is was to get politicians to uh 
get uh, regulators to recognize them not as a transportation company, but as a technology company. And that gave them a whole bunch of new ways they could skirt the laws and ultimately put uh, taxi cab drivers across the world, around the world, out of business, threatening their livelihoods. We've been saying it about Uber for years that they are not worker friendly. Now that Uber files have been dropped and prove that they knew what they were doing all along. And that's why paying attention to technology and the regulations surround it are so important to standing up for workers' rights. But we're out of time for this segment. want to thank Chris Garafa so much for joining us again this week. We'll be right back on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukman. And as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, yes, friends, we are back for our second hour. It is Tuesday, July 12th here at By Any Means Necessary in Washington, D.C. at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Time. We'll be opening the phone lines to you so you can give us a call and ask us whatever is on your mind about anything you've heard on the show today anything at all, or anything that tickles your fancy. But that's not the only way you can reach out and touch us at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Time by calling us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. Oh, no, you can also reach out and touch us and listen to our shows at sputniknews.com slash radio. Click on the plus sign and type in by any means necessary. You can also hear us on sputnik.me. Mave, that's M-A-V-E dot digital. And you can listen live on your radio dial at 105.5 FM and 1390 AM in the Washington, D.C. area from 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern time each weekday. And we're streaming live for your viewing pleasure on Rumble. Rumble.com slash C slash B-A-M necessary. The chat is live. And remember, friends, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern today, you can call us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But wherever you are in this world and however you do it, we want to hear from you. And at the top of the hour, I should inform you, for those who have not uh, been aware, are not watching or did not watch the I don't know how many at this point uh, live hearings for the January 6th House Select Committee uh, investigating that travesty uh, happened today at one o'clock. I think it is still ongoing. Uh, certain right wing figures such as members of the Proud Boys uh, and the Oath Keepers uh, have testified 
should be plenty of shenanigans to talk about uh, once that commences. But right now, I am glad that we are joined by Dr. Jared Ball, a father, husband, professor of Africana Studies at Morgan State University in Baltimore, Maryland, the curator of imixwhatilike.org, the author of the book, The Myth and Propaganda of Black Buying Power, and the co-founder, one of the co-founders of Black Power Media, the most dangerous show on social media, perhaps second to ours that you can find on YouTube. Dr. Ball, thank you for joining me. It's always a pleasure. Uh, I love, uh, of course, always love being able to build with you all here on this platform. So thank you very much for having me again. Absolutely glad to have you because there's so much going on in the world of capitalist celebrity class shenanigans. I I don't know where to start other than with Steve Harvey, and I don't want to because I don't like Steve Harvey. Let's start there. Um, but the fact that Steve Harvey has now joined this uh, Earned Your Leisure for Invest Fest 2022 in Atlanta. <laughs> oh, my God. I... Please explain what this mess is. It is is earn your leisure. Uh, uh, is what is that? What the the title just makes me angry. What is that? <laughs> so earn your leisure is, and I'm still learning about this. Um, uh, you know the the aforementioned reference to my work in buying power has sort of led me down this rabbit hole to 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 these folks um, in an inevitable clash between what I and many of us think of capitalism and black capitalism and what black capitalists think of capitalism and black capitalism. So Earn Your Leisure is uh, an academy, uh, a platform, a podcast, probably an LLC co-founded by Rashad Bilal and Troy Millings. Uh, Their YouTube channel has over 800,000 subscribers. They're podcast is one of the more popular in the uh, financial spaces, uh, I believe on Spotify, and they have developed, uh, and, and, you know, all jokes aside and the silliness aside, what they have done is is uh, expand and, and rebrand and adapt the old argument about black capitalism is the way to black freedom that has been a... a, a, a a promoted and encouraged problem for us for ever since we've been here and been nominally made free. So uh, InvestFest is what is their annual, and I believe this is their second or third annual uh, gathering uh, of black capitalist entrepreneurial, uh, entrepreneurial uh, business investment pundits, spokespeople. It is the who's who and the the people who I'm learning who are not at all popular in our spaces uh, have tremendous followings nationally, support from major media outlets, uh, the white corporate world, the, the financial community, and, and, uh, uh, and they're gathering once again next month to promote uh, themselves and their work and hopefully on from their point of view to expand their audience and reach uh, and probably 
capture of people's few pennies and remaining dollars since they target the black community. And this is what I think is, uh, um, again, all jokes and silliness aside, a major problem. So, yeah, to the where you started, they've enlisted Steve Harvey, Rick Ross, Charlemagne the God uh, as the primary uh, celebrity leadership and, you know, flagship celebrities attached to this year's Invest Fest. Uh, and as we can uh, talk about, you know, uh, for a few more minutes, uh, their analyses are troubling at best. Troubling is that's not even I we have FCC regulations that we have to abide here on this radio show. But one thing that Steve Harvey said, the recent thing that he said that just makes my teeth itch, as my mama used to say, he said that people have got to start investing in themselves. He said this in a written statement provided to Black Enterprise, of course. Uh, And Invest 2022 co-founder Matthew Garland said, quote, our mission in partnering with Steve Harvey is that we will make Invest Fest the premier festival for financial literacy and further expand Mm -hmm. our reach with global top business leaders. You know what that means, Dr. Ball. You know that that's that's, you know, investment speak for we are going to partner with capitalist companies to take the rest of black people's money. That is what it sounds like to me, because let's look at Steve Harvey. Just 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 who he is and how he came. This is a man who who. I, I do not knock him pursuing his dream of being a stand up comic, but he somehow turned him sleeping in his car into this thing that if people aren't willing to to uh, uh, intentionally put themselves in that kind of economic and physical distress to to quote unquote make it, then they really are lazy. That's that's the one thing. Again, I'm, I'm, I'm not knocking the fact that the man pursued his dreams, left a job on the Ford uh, 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 line at the, you know, at the, at the Ford plant. Uh, decent job, but that's not what he wanted to do with his life. And that's cool. I'm for that. But then to use the way he and I'm not entirely sure that he had to struggle that way. I think he just kind of chose to or he just sort of make some of that stuff up to make it sound good so that he could beat people over the head who choose not to grind themselves into um, almost out of existence in order to, quote unquote, make it that that's one part. The other part is this man also rose to prominence prominence by giving relationship advice, which I got to tell you, I am vehemently opposed to just in general, because I, I just think relationships, marriage, whatever you want to call them, they work according to how the people are in them, make them work. And, and I really can't tell you how, how to do that because I'm not in it. But here is a guy who got rich off of giving uh, a relationship advice and wrote, I don't know, how many books was it? Was it, Doctor? Was it three books? I honestly have no idea, but it's been several. Specifically geared toward black women and pointing out all the reasons, allegedly, that black women 
can't find a man, can't find a husband. And it's all because we 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 are too quick to engage in 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 uh, sexual activity. We don't ask the right questions. It's it's and, and we don't have standards. But this coming from a man who left his wife <laughs> for another woman and is now, I think, divorced from the you see you see what I'm saying? So so Steve Harvey jokes, yes, funny, yes, you know, pursued his personal dream. That's cool but also used his platform on the Steve Harvey show in front of an audience full of white folks to tear Monique down when she accurately raised the issue of the contract issue with Netflix. All all this kind of stuff. Steve Harvey's not my dude. He's just for all the reasons for many, many, many years. And then you have this type of person who clearly doesn't have a whole heck of a lot of respect for black people. I feel like, Dr. Ball, that's the overarching attitude that I'm getting from this man. He partners with, and he's still quite popular among black folks, which is just wild to me. But but he partners with these other shysty kind of celebrity capitalists to do exactly what, you know, I I just said and you just confirmed they literally said they're going to do. Look, we're partnering, partnering with all of these corporations to take what's left of black people's money. I don't don't know. How off the mark am I, Dr. Ball? Am I just being an evil, angry black woman here? No, I mean, because, again, again, there is. Uh, the history of overt expressed desire to promote this as the alternative to a black militant radical political struggle. So there is this track record. It's not. It's not. It's not uh, some some deep con- uh, conspiracy theory. Other than it is a conspiracy among those who rule to use celebrity to manage as they would any other psychological warfare, propaganda campaign, marketing, advertising campaign, to manipulate public opinion, in this case among black people, away from radical politics and analyses and into celebrity-driven success stories and promises that American, that is North American, United States capitalism can be and is your only salvation. So this is why I likened Harvey earlier to uh, a generation ago to Tom Joyner, who was a very prominent black figure in black radio, who did a lot of, who who it was, as as I've written a little bit about, uh, was explicitly said to have been paid $14 million a year at one point by his white corporate sponsors, specifically because he would help them capture Black America's quote-unquote buying power. So this is, uh, uh, and his own, now I I can no longer find them, but his his previously existing, that is Tom Joyner's testimonials from his, his website, uh, video testimonials from his black audiences saying, uh, literally calling him Uncle Tom and literally saying that uh, to the white ad buyers, 
if 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 Uncle Tom tells us to buy your 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 washing machine, we're going to buy it. So this is this is so that's the the sort of financial corporate advertising side of it. Again, the political side of it, most notably, explicitly stated uh, under Richard Nixon, retold in a different and abbreviated form during Bill Clinton's eulogy for. Uh, um, John Lewis in saying that thank you to John Lewis because otherwise we would have had to deal with Kwame Ture, who he called, of course, Stokely Carmichael. But um, uh, it, it, it was that we want to promote, that is, those of the in, from the elite want to promote this idea that black power is black economic capitalist success, is uh, an, an elite, well-selected, promoted uh, politician, uh, i.e. Barack Obama or John Lewis himself. Uh, that is, so, so again, that's what all of this is in, an extension of. So of course, Steve Harvey made it and worked hard. Uh, of course, most people work hard or harder than even Steve Harvey did without the fantasy and the pot of gold and the TV shows and the movies and all of the things that have come to Steve Harvey that by definition both in terms of stardom, celebrity, and in terms of capitalism uh, and wealth, cannot go to any other segment of the community. By definition, wealth and celebrity must accumulate in the hands of, of a few. Otherwise, there is no celebrity and there is no wealth. So his singular example is being brought back again by Earn Your Leisure for a New Generation. And in a, in a recent clip of, with an interview Steve Harvey gave with those brothers of Earn Your Leisure, he says as much. He says, the reason I'm sitting down and working with you all is because you have helped me reach an audience I would have never been able to reach. Meaning, as I understood it at least, the next generation of Black people who are necessary to maintain his wealth and celebrity that is Steve Harvey's and the from and and uh, uh, who will maintain Har Steve Harvey as relevant in the eyes of the corporate world that puts him on family feud that puts him on tour that puts him on in uh, that supports his morning show that that puts him in play the ad revenue the ad purchasers that come from the white corporate world uh, which is why, of course, as we can come back to, so I could, you know, I stop rambling, uh, uh, which is why, of course, InvestFest 2022 includes Dan Cathy, uh, the recently stepped down CEO and, and son of the founder of uh, Chick-fil-A, the very conservative multi-billionaire uh, who, of, of course, is happy to work with this group for his own image and help to help fleece whatever few dollars remain in the black community that didn't get pet spent on his restaurants. So this is what has to occur. Uh, and this is why so much of this is given space and room to breathe so that the analyses and the arguments that you and I might represent uh, find less of an audience and, and less of an audience willing and capable of understanding and receiving and, and building upon our message. Yeah, I definitely want you to ramble on some more, particularly about the idea, Dr. Ball, of earn your leisure, just the idea that that these people <laughs> convey that is so, mm. oh, it's so offensive to me, to my core. So I, mm. I would love for you to expound on the problems with that and uh, some of the other points that you brought up. 
Well, I mean, first of all, even as as you you point out, even the the name "Earn Your Leisure," as if working people haven't already done that, as if you know, never mind the ancestral earnings accumulated to black people specifically, but to all working people. The idea, again, that's why a few weeks ago I made the the, the not so real joke about uh, referring back to to um, now his name escapes me, but the 19th century Marxist who was arguing about the right to be lazy, that working people have earned the right to 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 be lazy, and now here here they come rebranding black capitalism as our salvation to suggest that we have not done enough, that we haven't worked hard enough. That's sort of to your point, even about Steve Harvey's message, that if you haven't overcome your poverty, uh, it's because you haven't worked as hard. You haven't sacrificed as much. In fact, in that recent interview I was just uh, talking about, he even says to them uh, in, in, in regurgitating that, that nonsensical myth about equating uh, um, uh, batting in baseball to success in the in the in, in capitalism or in the financial markets, by saying that if you don't take risks and aren't willing to fail and to overcome your failures, then you can't succeed. Uh, of course, suggest, and then he went on to say that in baseball, if you hit, if you if you get on base not, three out of ten times, you're a millionaire. We've heard this millions so many times. People have said this. First of all. The analogy is ridiculous because he's talking about professional athletes. So he's talking about the 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 most the an incalculably small percentage of the black community that would even be, particularly nowadays, where the league is mostly Latino and and white uh, uh, or Asian, where where you would find you find an infinitesimally small amount of the black community even up for a chance to bat three out of 10 and make millions of dollars in baseball. But even if you do that, if to equate that rate of failure to, to investment, uh, uh, as Steve Harvey said recently, that uh, he would, he argues should happen often and freely to quote him directly. Uh, you should be willing to overcome seven out of 10 failure investments, meaning, meaning what for a black community that is, whose wealth is headed towards zero, whose relative income uh, to whites is is uh, stagnant at best uh, uh, to, 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 to people who have an average household of $6,000 in credit card debt, who don't have even $500 for uh, an emergency in the bank account, who are losing their jobs uh, uh, Rapidly, whose whose who, the value of whose property and wealth is 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 lessened simply by their blackness. Who was he talking about that should be able to withstand seven out of ten investment failures to then come back uh, and achieve success at the rate he has? And then, lastly, on this particular point, he leaves out, of course, that he's investing a portion of a fortune that he amassed through the rarest of success stories in going from sleeping in his car to becoming an entertainment celebrity. He did not amass his wealth through investment. It's the, it's the microcosm of the bigger lie black people are sold in comparison to white in any other community when, when said black people should have greater financial literacy, save your money, invest wisely, don't spend frivolously, as if that's how wealth was accumulated by white America. 
that's not how wealth was accumulated by white America. They, of course, leaving out the the the, the colonialism, the enslavement, the genocide, the the violent takeovers, the hostile takeovers, the warfare, all of this other stuff, the inheritance, the one percent. I mean, all, overcoming all of that and then telling black people to to invest their way to wealth. So the, this is the microcosm of that to say that that if I've slept in my car and ended up one of the, 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 the most famous and wealthy black people in the country, why can't you do that too? Uh, is again, a microcosm of the mythology of what capitalism in this country can offer. Uh, and this is of course why I continue to argue the celebrity of a Steve Harvey only exists to produce this kind of impact on our analyses. Uh, that's really his only, cause you know, I, I mean, there are plenty of talented and funny people, uh, uh, but only a few who can be put in this kind of position uh, to have their celebrity be transferred over to the Earn Your Leisure crew so that they can continue, as I've said before, to fleece what remains of, of their community's money. Absolutely. And we're going to move to a quick break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. So we will be back. So please stay with us. By any means necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukman. And as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Yes, friends, we are back. I continue to be joined by Dr. Jared Ball and phone lines are open 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. We were talking about this invest fest mess on the other side of the break, Dr. Ball. And, and this is my last question on this foolishness. Do you think there is a significance that the location was chosen in Atlanta? Because I, I don't think that was a coincidence. <laughs> I, honestly, I'm not sure. But I mean, it does make sense that that would be the place, you know, that is the the sort of uh, mecca of black capitalism going back to Andy Young and and, and uh, before that even. I mean, uh, the, 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 there's a long history of uh, an attempt to, to, to make that the black uh, capitalist mecca. Uh, so yeah, I'm not surprised that that would be be the place. Uh, it has, of course, it has sort of a social, you know, within the black community, it has a, a, a social uh, uh, appeal. Uh, um, uh, what's what I'm looking for? But but a sort of a, a legacy of of good times and and positive references to blackness, no matter how uh, you know. Uh, yeah, however, people, however, that might be defined <laughs> from freak dick to, to black capitalism. Atlanta is has been seen as very important to Dr. King, of course, as well. So but uh, uh, yeah, I mean, th that would just be my guess um, off the top of my head as to why it would take place in Atlanta. I don't know if any of them have a particular I think the founders of EYL come from New York. So um, uh Maynard Jackson, that was the name of the mayor I was mm. trying to think of. Maynard Jackson and Andy Young, like they're, they're like the two leaders of bringing black capitalism to Atlanta. But uh, anyway, yeah. So so but I think the two founders of EYL come from New York uh, initially. So I'm not sure if they relocated there. 
uh, or if they're just trying to get closer to, to you know, th three of the four founders of, of, of Black Power Media. I'm not sure. <laughs> Maybe that's what it is. <laughs> Stay far away from them. That's what I say. But, you know, sometimes in organizing, we got to go where the people are, even if the the reason the people are there is pretty despicable, despicable. But, you know, I was just listening to or watching uh, the Kwame Ture speech on uh, the responsibility of the conscious. And, and our responsibility is to make the unconscious aware of their unconscious actions, not necessarily to bring them to revolution. They have to do that on their own. But on the other end of the um, chicanery uh, uh, spectrum, in politics, Republican politics in particular, Dr. Ball, there is a campaign ad that the first time I saw it, I honestly thought this is a joke. No one actually did this for real and was serious. But no, no, it is actually a real campaign ad uh, uh, put out by Republican congressional candidate Jerome with an N Davison, who uses an AR-15 rifle to defend his family from, he literally says this on the video, a dozen angry Democrats in Klan hoods. Um, this <sighs> thing, <laughs> I just hear from the... <laughs> From your exasperated sigh, uh, just for background information, Davison is a former NFL player and a pastor. I am so sorry, Brown Palestinian Jesus. I'm sorry. Um, he's, <laughs> uh... he, he's one of five Republicans running for the GOP nomination in Arizona's fourth congressional district, which includes parts of Tempe, Mesa and Chandler. Uh, the video starts out like a standard Republican campaign ad with him saying Democrats like to say no one needs an AR-15 for self-defense, uh, that no one could possibly need all 30 rounds. But then you see the 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 Klan members, you know, coming with axes. And I think one of them has like a garden Oh, <laughs> right. Just all kinds of bizarre and nonsensical. They stopped at Home Depot on the way for, for props. for and, the... and raided the garden section um, yeah. for props for this video. And 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 Davison is like sitting in his kitchen with his American flag cup um, and and he's praying. And then he goes to grab his AR-15. And then he says, but when this rifle is the only thing standing between between you, uh, between your family and a dozen angry Democrats and Klan hoods, you just might need that semi-automatic and all 30 round. Lord have mercy. I, I, I don't know what is more annoying about this video. The fact that mm, Republicans repeatedly like to cherry pick the racist history of this country as if it was ever only Democrats ever who were Klan members. That's absolutely not true. In order to be a member of the Klan, you could be a Republican and many were. And all you had to do was hate white people and be uh, hate black people rather and be white. <laughs> there was no that uh, that there's that part. But then I, I think there is the the continued 
defense of something that is indefensible, and that is the the gun culture of the U.S. I'm not even talking about, you know, the, the right to self-defense, which I'm never going to argue with people about. But I, I think there is this, this, uh, this video goes a step farther in the uh, mythologizing of the, the gun culture, the gun mythos um, in this country that even Westerns, I, I think, didn't, you know, did, didn't go, uh, didn't go as far with where, you know, Westerns were all about the, the, the American, you know, the plucky story of the, of the, of the settlers who were taming the West with just their guns. And well, that wasn't true. They weren't taming the West. They were slaughtering indigenous people. And it wasn't just them and their guns. It was with the help of the U.S. military. <laughs> that's, that's how that was done. Um, but this goes farther and kind of twists this, in my mind, this American gun mythology into this bizarre, uh, uh, weird bastardization of the actual history of racist terrorism in this country that I think only could really be pulled off by a black conservative because conservatives usually use black conservatives to say these kinds of things. And I, I don't know. I'm just wondering uh, how, how what your thoughts are on this particular messaging and, and, and what it means about where, I guess, politically, maybe we are uh, as a country. I mean, once it's it's it's. It's similar to what we were saying about the Steve Harvey situation. It's once you get past the silliness of the visuals of the commercial, of the the, the surface level message of the commercial, uh, and this idea that that I mean, first of all, just militarily, that you're going to have an AR-15 and you're going to be attacked by a group of people, as you said, coming at you with garden hose. Uh, uh, even then enough of them against you and your 30 round AR-15, you're still going to lose. Um, so so just on that sort of fantasy of what uh, self-defense means in the society and what people extrapolate that to, 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 to mean in their own imagination is just silly. But the 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 other part of the comparison to the previous discussion is the rebranding of the history to support the black conservative response. So uh, in addition to what you've already outlined about the history, uh, the point of the, the, the video is not to get people to abandon the Democratic Party because that was that at one point was the party of the Klan. The the point is, and it's not so. It's not some progressive, radical advance or critique. It's a, it's, it's, it's a silly Republican conservative argument, trying to lure black and other audiences to the Republican Party and conservative politics by posing them as the protectors of our right to defend ourselves from an invading racist Democratic Party. Uh, so while I am not in support of the Democratic Party, I am also not in support of assessing the very real oppressive conditions and suggesting we move to the right 
uh, and that somehow having an AR-15 is the solution. Uh, because once again, I don't know, it's not a George Jackson, uh, 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 Che Guevara approach to being armed. It's some silly right-wing conservative push to support the Republican Party and broader black capitalist conservative politics. So uh, uh, again, that's where I, you know, as I'm thinking about it, and and we looked at it this morning. It's the it's the the uh, it's certainly a parallel to uh, the claims of Steve Harvey and Earn Your Leisure that we can black capitalist and invest our way in American capitalist Wall Street our way to equality. Uh, and equally, there are, um, again, parallels of nonsense or paralleling nonsense. <laughs> yeah, it, it absolutely is paralleling nonsense, particularly since these hearings, which I, I continue to contend are, are pretty much political theater for the Democratic Party. And it's like they're, they're free campaign uh, ads that they are using to campaign for the midterm elections. I am not convinced still as, as entertaining as these hearings have been and as scintillating as some of the details uh, are that have emerged that, that we may not have known in depth before they were uh, uh, testified or before they were revealed in testimony. I mean, I think it's interesting that that this ad drops as these hearings are happening, Dr. Ball. And 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 we clearly have in this country a, a political system with one political party that is supported by people who are quite willing and and have shown that they are quite willing to carry out acts of violence against the cops, against their so-called sacred institutions, against members of their own political party that they do not like and are currently uh, some are on trial in the courts for it and, and the whole lot are on trial in the court of public opinion for it. And then we've got another political party that should have done something about those people um, a year and a half ago <laughs> when the actual attempted insurrection riot actually happened. But the best that, you know, we can get from them is a nice televised hearing and um, some fundraising from the hearings and, uh, you know, from from their from their campaigning to save the country from the first party in the midterms. And I I'm just wondering how you if you have been paying attention to them, how you are assessing these uh, hearings so far and, and you know, what, what you think the outcome of them will be? I have, I, frankly, I have not been paying uh, enough attention to comment much on the, the spectacle that, that I see that it is, uh, other than to say that it reminds me of something that I, I can't remember the woman's name, but there was a recent uh, documentary. No, not a documentary, a recent dramatization made um, probably last year about the 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 pro conservative uh, anti feminist and a probably anti abortion woman, a white woman who got popular from Maryland. Dang, her name is, is I can't remember her name. She came out of Maryland, too, uh, uh, was it, and became. Uh, do you was know it Phyllis, Phyllis Schlafly? Am I, I'm thinking is of that, Phyllis think, Schlafly. No, 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 no. Wait, no, no, no. Um, 
No, because I think that was another documentary that 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 I also uh, or not documentary, but series that I did also watch. But that that's not what I I don't think that's her name. Um, no, that was not her. Uh, this is some I'm thinking of somebody else. Uh, Schlafly was was um, more nationally known, I think. Um, yeah, I think uh, she was the, the the anti ERA crusader, I believe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now this, is, but it's a similarly situated woman. The, the reason I, the, the reason that this, that that this is coming up though is that there was a scene that I I hope was not fictionalized because it certainly rings true, and what I suspect often goes on. But there was a scene where this woman had made it to the stage with Billy Graham. And where they, but and they were debating something involved. I forget the details now, but they had a debate, uh, uh, a, a right wing debate, a conservative debate. And then after the debate on stage, they went backstage and had a discussion about cutting up the money and making this a routine performance. That it it it, it did it, the the argument, the public debate, the spectacle of their argument made them both money. It kept them both relevant, and that's that's exactly how I see the, this the uh, the well in general the 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 duopoly of parties we we have in this society in this country, uh, but certainly this most recent um, uh, set of hearings that that the ultimate goal is for Democrats to blame everything on Trump and conservatism uh, and then to use that as a way to not only get themselves reelected, to make themselves seem relevant, to make the, to help themselves fundraise, to help themselves uh, uh, platform for their next election, uh, but to, to, and to make themselves seem the only legitimate option to the lunacy of the Republican Party, which you know, I you know again to the point of, of you know, even to the one of the other stories that I I think you wanted us to to look at that you know Biden's lack of popularity within the Democratic Party is irrelevant to the Democratic Party itself if they think it is he is the one that will defeat the the leading candidate uh, elected by the Republicans or. To quote or paraphrase the late Glenn Ford, they would rather lose with a Biden or a Hillary, certainly, than win with even a Bernie Sanders, who for many of us is not nearly far left enough. So my point is, is just that I, I again, I have to I, I, I have not watched much of the hearings at all. Uh, I just but I do see them as part of a spectacle to keep the Democrats relevant and for some point scoring. By the way, there's point scoring even happening on the right, you know, hmm. from Tucker Carlson on down, where they can then point to the Democrats holding these hearings or leading these hearings as being the part of, you know, as the, the problem of denying their, you know, white manness or whatever, the, you know, or trying to suppress their white malehood, manhood, uh, um, you know, whatever. Uh, and by the way, admittedly coming out of a very reactionary time for how manhood was defined generationally, to see Tucker Carlson presented as the epitome of anybody's masculinity is still <laughs> hilarious to me. So, I mean, you know, but anyway, but everybody gets points. So, and the only people that lose are the majority of the people who, who can't get their uh, politicians elected, can't get, and if they get elected, can't get their platforms advanced. Uh, and, 
you know, I think are looking down a barrel of a political and economic gun coming with, you know, what I see being forecasted on the horizon of an already horrific economy. So. Absolutely. I definitely agree. But we're going to move to another quick break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. So please hang in there and stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukman. And as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines are still open, friends. 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. I continue to be joined by Dr. Jared Ball. And Dr. Ball, just a quick pivot, because I I, I want to end on a somewhat light note, although I'm guessing this probably won't end up that way, actually. I, I was watching the trailer for um, uh, a movie that is called uh, The Woman King. And 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 I, I readily admit, I love movies. I love television. I watch too much television. Most of it is absolute trash and garbage. I know this. But sometimes I do need to just unplug and not think so hard and deeply about things. And I watch a lot of just silly television shows. And then I end up overthinking these things anyway because they are so terrible on so many issues when we examine the actual content. And I'm wondering if you've seen the trailer for uh, this uh, new movie starring Viola Davis. And she stars uh, as an African warrior in uh, this movie, The Woman King. And this is actually allegedly based on true events. I'm already skeptical. Uh, (laughs) The Woman King follows General Nan. Naniska, General Naniska and the fighters who protected the kingdom of Dahomey in the 1800s as she trained the next generation of warriors in order to defend themselves against invading colonialists. And uh, one of the lines that her character says in the movie that's in the trailer, I offer you a choice, fight or we die. This is what she tells her recruits. Now, that sounds good. Feels good, but this is a Hollywood produced movie. People in Hollywood telling African history, telling African people stories. And as Public Enemy once famously said, don't trust it. But I don't know. Mm. That's, maybe that's just me. So, just very quickly, let me start by saying I misspoke in the last segment, and I want to clarify that who I was talking about, Madeline Murray O'Hare, played uh, by Melissa Leo, mm-hmm. in the most hated woman in America, and it, and she was an atheist who got prayer out of schools, and that's what that's where one of the contradictions was was uh, presented, where she was debating Billy Graham, uh, uh, and then splitting the prize money. Uh, one presenting as conservative, one pre- presenting as progressive, and she may have very well been. I don't clearly my memory isn't isn't right on it, and it's just this one, <laughs> it's one movie 
not even, you know, so, so I don't claim to have uh, expertise on that, but, but I just wanted to clarify what I was talking about in the scene I was referencing. As far as this, I have seen the, the, the trailer. Um, I, again, I'm very skeptical. My Vernon philosophy of black media avoidance is, is you know, my spidey sense is kicking in. Uh, I also, uh, from childhood, have watched way too much television and film. Uh, was basically raised on television, uh, it, you know, so so I recognize how damaging and dangerous that can be. But, uh, you know, so when I saw the, the trailer and seen some of the hype online about this this movie, uh, you know, I'm concerned. Viola Davis does not have a good track record of playing, I think, um, of being able to depict any sort of progressive, you know, certainly radical, advanced uh, uh, womanhood. She's played a lot of reactionary womanhood, black womanhood in particular, on in film. Uh, and so I'm, I'm worried about that uh, in her track record in, 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 in film selection, script selection. I'm worried also that in the, in the, in the trailer, what I suspect is happening, because one of the, the summaries of the film that I saw said that it was uh, it was it was describing her as organizing the sort of like a Shaka Zulu thing. So, you know, in, in or, you know, fighting other Africans in trying to organize them to fight whites. Uh, and I feel like that first half is going to get most of the attention. So I suspect that the scene where we see her in that clip saying it's e it's either fight or we die. I suspect she's saying it's about fighting other Africans to prepare to fight whites who I see being kissed <laughs> in one clip in that trailer. There's somebody's kissing a white man in the trailer. So I'm like, what <laughs> are they going to really give us an interracial romance in the midst of enslavement and colonization? Uh, because you know, I mean, are they really going to try? So I don't know. I'm just very suspicious and I'm, I am, I, I think we're going to get a, a, my prediction and I'm happy to come back on after it comes out and be checked publicly. But I suspect that, again, most of the, the focus is going to be on Africans fighting Africans. There's going to be white folks sort of in the 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 sort of, uh, um, you know, elite ether uber atmosphere uh, and then showing up as romance interests to sort of balance what is, uh, you know, going to have to be at least some discussion of white savagery. Uh, and I, you know, and I think um, we're not going to get something that's going to inspire African nationalism or pan-Africanism or some sort of revolution. Uh, and, I, you know, it's probably going to have a happy ending. <laughs> see? <laughs> But see, I, I and, and shout out to the by any means necessary chat. Always, always shout out to our friends in the chat who really you all make this live hour so much more fun uh, uh, than it already is. And it is already a lot of fun to do. Shout out to uh, uh, Lelis B uh, in the chat who said there's a strand of people pushing the quote, these women were in charge of the slave trade uh, end quote, mm. whole and uh, oh, they aren't even ADOS FBA. Now here's the thing. Here's the thing Dr. <laughs> I know I know it's this is I feel like this movie is just gonna unleash a whole new level of that's right 
Oh this my God! What in the world? In Africa. Uh oh. So Uh-oh. so I'm very afraid that because of the very uh, uh, touchy uh, uh, the complex history of the Dahomey people involved in the slave trade. Now, I I have explained it this way, and I still believe that this is true. When you have a a country that is an overwhelming military power, and even though they send their emissaries to you with, you know, a few trinkets and an olive branch, but you know that they are, outgun you because their people have been at war with each other for 100 years before they even thought about you. And and why were they at war for 100 years? Well, resources. So when they fought each other and killed each other for their resources, they decide, oh, let's go to these these other places where there, there are other resources. They have perfected all of this weaponry for war. And so, so, I mean, yes, I think, of course, of course, there were some, a handful of African leaders who were in some way complicit for their own personal gain. But I really do believe, Dr. Ball, and I think the history bears this out, that this was not an equal agreement between these colonizers, between these interlopers and these tribal leaders, even the ones who, quote unquote, cooperated. Because when you have an overwhelming military power behind you, can the person you are so-called negotiating with, can they really say no without suffering the consequences of that overwhelming military power. I don't know. Maybe I'm overthinking things, but I think ADOS F- ADOS FBA is going to have a, a, a ball with this movie. I think, uh, like Lellis B said, there's going to be a whole new bunch of black woman hate coming out of this movie, and I think it's going to be a mess. Listen, the, the, the context is already the problem. The, it, it's not that there aren't a, a bevy of issues to get into with this history. The issue is, are we in a situation where we can have a radical conclusion or prescriptive response? And if the context is to justify European enslavement of Africans, to justify a division along pan-African lines of the of the diaspora, then it, 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 the the discussions and the value is 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 already extinguished. It's, it doesn't exist. So uh, we have to. Uh, that is the, the the task that we're faced with. You and I and, and those with whom we work that, uh, to 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 negate our negation is, is my godfather says, and we, uh, to, to, uh, uh, and to offer up, uh, the radical critique and responses, uh, and, and response and, and analysis and response to the questions and the challenges posed by this film. And we're obviously already starting clearly, uh, the, the, the attempt to make conservative, um, responses predominate. You know, uh, you know, prevalent, be more most prevalent, uh, and that's that's the, the the I think the biggest struggle of our time. We have uh, it is very easy to have popular renditions of our problems put forth, uh, but very difficult to to develop radical analysis and interpretations to those problems. The space is taken up by conservatism, which has clearly been the theme of our conversation today, which I've thoroughly enjoyed as always. So thank you once again. No, 
Thank you, Dr. Ball. It is always a pleasure to have you on. And thank you all in the By Any Means Necessary chat for uh, being with us as always. And uh, many apologies, Lily's B, for mispronouncing your name. But once again, every day, folks, we always come back to this point. We the people have to struggle for our liberation against not just the capitalist and the corporate bosses, against not just the politicians who they control with their lobbying money, but we also have to fight and struggle against the very stories, our very history, the very history of struggle that we, the people, created. And if we do not fight back against the popularized mischaracterization of history, we will continue to find ourselves misrepresented in the present and always finding ourselves having to react to what the system does instead of effectively organizing to overturn it and build something better for all of us on its ashes. But we're out of time for today's show. want to thank Dr. Jared Ball so much for joining us. Our commander, Sean, the voice Blackman, will be back tomorrow. He was taking a much needed break and we will be back tomorrow with a whole new set of interviews. We certainly hope that you will join us. We thank you for joining us today. Until next time, you all take good care of each other and yourselves. Aluta Continua. The struggle continues, but Victoria Acerta, victory is certain. Peace. By any means necessary.